Well, hello everybody, this is Christian Basar again with another episode of the podcast. I was thinking about this the other day, uh, historical thoughts and interpretations, you know. Um, I was thinking about, like, uh, having an acronym, like HTI, but I, I don't know if I want to just call it HTI because people are going to ask that, like, what is that? Um, I don't know, it sounds like some kind of some kind of virus or something like that, I don't know. So, I mean, we can, I may call it HTI, like, every once in a while for just a little bit, uh, like, within the podcast, but, you know, historical thoughts and interpretations, I think that's better. At least it tells you what the podcast is. HTI is, I don't know, some kind of institute or something. Um, but anyway, so uh, today, uh, well, I have the, a lot of gain on my uh, microphone right now, so hopefully it's not too loud. Um, but anyway, uh, I've been told I'm a, a, I have a loud voice, um, pretty loud, you know, when I'm talking, so... I don't know where people got that idea. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, um, what I'm going to be talking about today, this is going to be a really long podcast, right? So um, I mentioned in my last one, remember the last podcast I put up was about the Nazi um, manipulation, so to speak, of the of the, of the Christian Bible to, um, uh, to make... To, uh, to make their Aryan ideology, racist Aryan ideology, uh, compatible, so to speak, with uh, with the scriptures, right? So this was so they had the Lutheran, uh, certain Lutheran uh, ministers and bishops and everything uh, get together and actually change the Bible to make uh, you know Jesus an Aryan figure, removing the Old Testament and so on. So so last week or last time we talked a bit about how the Nazis manipulated religion. Um, and but this time I'm going to be talking about how the how religion um, was in the Soviet Union during World War II. But it, I'm not specifically going to look just at uh, what happened in in the Russian Church, uh, Russian Orthodox Church, by the way, not Lutherans, not uh, Catholicism. For um, those who may not be totally familiar with Russia, uh, Russian Orthodoxy is the main religion of what is now Russia, but also what was. Um, you know, Russia back in the past too, right? So that includes the Soviet Union, but specifically I'll be talking a little bit, of course, about uh, the church during the war uh, and some of the reasons behind what happened and everything. But also, um, specifically this podcast is about the memory of World War II in the Russian Orthodox Church today. So we're kind of looking more at, at social memory rather than what happened back in the past, right? So... Um, so we're going into a lot of modern things, and um, so uh, I worked on this project a few years ago. It was a really fun project, I must say, and uh, so we'll, we'll get right into it. And uh, just keep in mind that uh, if you're in the mood for a longer podcast, uh, you're, you're in for a treat right now because the last, um, the last project I, I recorded, uh, it was the document for that ended up being... I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's about 13 pages or so. This one is about 50 or 60. So, <laughs> so it's going to be a long one. Let me just say that I'm, uh, I'm recording this in uh, certain increments. I'm not just recording this all at once. But uh, so, but anyway, um, let's get right into it. So again, the topic is uh, the memory of World War II, which in Russia is called the Great Patriotic War, not necessarily World War II. I mean, you'll if you speak to a Russian person and you talk about uh, Second World War, they'll understand you, but it's called the Great Patriotic War. 
Um, and if you hear about patriotic war, that is the war between uh, Napoleonic France and Imperial Russia back in the early 19th century. So it's kind of so, but the great patriotic war is World War II. And and also just something to keep in mind too for those who may not know, uh, the great patriotic war is not 1939 to 45 as as we in the West would think about World War II. Uh, because, of course, with the invade, Nazi invasion of Poland and everything like that. Um, the Great Patriotic War takes place from 41 to 45. So that's when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union on June 22nd, 1941. So the Eastern Front started uh, almost two years after um, the Nazi invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939. Right, so just, just some little, uh, little historical tidbits uh, to get us started. So uh, let's... Uh, Get right into it. So, um, memory is a powerful thing, right? So, the remembrance of past events can affect present mindsets and visions uh, for the future. And and this is true both for individuals and for whole societies. Groups of individuals with often similar beliefs and a common historical memory. Uh, and in this study, we'll be analyzing the memory of World War II in Russia, which is there, as I, as I said before, which is there commonly called the Great Patriotic War. Uh, the war lasted, well, I'm repeating myself here. Uh, the war lasted from 1941 to 45 and became a struggle for survival of the communist Soviet Union against the fascist Nazi Germany. And this conflict affects modern Russians today, seven decades later. As one Russian citizen has, has told me, actually, she said, uh, quote, every Russian family had lost someone in the war with Germany. And so this was sent to me in a, in a text message uh, a few years ago. And, and you hear this fairly often, actually. And uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin actually mentioned this uh, around January 27th, which was both the... Uh, he was meeting with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Moscow. And uh, Putin mentioned this fact that every family had lost somebody in the Great Patriotic War. Um, this was... And January 27th is, of course, the day of the remembrance of the, the, the Holocaust, but also um, around this time was the anniversary of the lifting of the Siege of Leningrad in 1944. So it's interesting how the remembrance of the Holocaust and the Great Patriotic War matched at the same time. And also, he mentioned this way back in 2011, um, when you know current President Putin, uh, he was then the Russian Prime Minister, um, he was talking to an American history journal back in 2018. 2011 and he said he said the same thing so uh but today as i said we'll focus on the war's remembrance in a specific organization a powerful ubiquitous force in russian society the russian orthodox church and every once in a while you may hear me say roc uh so that means russian orthodox church it's just the acronym for uh the church uh, studying the church's perspective on the war it's important because it is a social body which brings together most of russia's population um because, and just, just to give a little bit of an insight to this, um, according to the CIA's uh, 2006 estimates in its World Factbook, 15 to 20% of Russians were practicing ROC members, uh, which was a fair percentage higher than the proportions of other so-called uh, traditional Russian faiths, such as Islam and Buddhism. Um, but also the Factbook notes, however, that many believers in many ROC believers were non-practicing, implying that the actual percentage of Russians identifying it as orthodox, it could actually be much higher than 15 or 20 percent. You know, it's like you have you have sometimes in, in the Western world, um, 
in Russia, I'm not so sure, but I would imagine there would be a similar thing where people will believe in God or they'll believe a religious way, but they don't necessarily practice, right? So they're believing but not practicing. In the West, you may hear it as a spiritual, not religious. So, you know, someone may believe in God and believe in a certain religion, but they don't, you know, necessarily attend church very often. Something like that, right? And so it's, um, so if 15 to 20% of Russians are practicing, like going to church every week, um, going to all the Easter ceremonies, all the, the Christmas celebrations and everything, um, you know, those are practicing. So the actual percentage of Russian Orthodox people might be actually higher. Uh, simultaneously, the church has a central role in Russian history and culture, making it a powerful influence. So its memory of the Great Patriotic War will have an effect on Russian so social memory as a whole. And so to start off with, we're going to talk about the church's memory, to talk about the church's memory of World War II, uh, we'll briefly examine the church's contributions to the Soviet war effort. Um, and the, the war's importance to modern uh, Russian identity will then be investigated uh, before we start talking about the church's importance in Russian society, culture, and identity. And finally, the church's perspective on the war will be detailed through analysis of its writings, ceremonies, and um, various organizations that are connected with the ROC. Um, and this look at Orthodox organizations will include some groups with their own views towards Russian nationality, which aren't necessarily in line with the, the may I say, the official ROC. Um, and so throughout this, ideas from social memory studies will be used um, to help explain the concepts um, discussed. And we'll, we'll see later how, how they all, all those fit in. Okay, so talking about Russian Orthodoxy during the war itself. Um, so when Hitler's armies invaded the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, the Russian Orthodox Church was actually among the first to react. On that very day, the patriarchal locum tenens of the ROC, so he was um, sort of standing in. Um, uh, Metropolitan Sergius uh, Sagorodsky, he called on the Russian people to rise up and repel the invaders. And so just a, a little note on this uh, locum tenens part. So Metropolitan Sergius had been made the locum tenens, or stand-in leader of the Russian Orthodox Church in the 1930s. And this was during a period of increased communist repression against church activities. And so there was a previ previous leader of the church, Patriarch Tikhon, um, and he, he died. And the state constantly was arresting the church's administration. And so, you know, deputies had to be appointed. And so Sergius's pre um, predecessor and the one who appointed him, Metropolitan Peter, had died in exile in 1936. And um, Sergius then became the patriarchal locum tenens, or kind of... Um, provisional or stand-in leader until he became patriarch in the church election of 1943. So he was just kind of standing in at that point, and then uh, then he was made officially the patriarch in 1943, and we'll actually go into the history of that as well. Um, and so uh, Metropolitan Sergius, um, or Patriarch Sergius, called on Russian people to resist the Nazis that were invading. And in 1942, um, the war was still happening and was still going to go on for three more years. Um, there was a book called The Truth About Religion in Russia. In addition to Sergius's address on June 22nd, uh, this book included stories of believers giving up money and also praying for victory. It condemned the Germans for atrocities committed against the Russian people. And it explained how the religious how religious people could serve in uh, the Soviet Union, which was an atheistic, anti-religious um, country. And it 
it praised Russian Christians for showing true defiance against the Nazis by, for example, celebrating Easter to fight despite the uh, danger of aerial attack. So this this book was really full of just saying like you know Russian people were 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 supporting the Soviet state, were fighting against Nazis, and also explained how like you know this, somebody may say, well, how can I serve the Soviets? They're anti-religious. Well. This is how. That's kind of what this book was saying, and it had all these stories and articles to help explain these things. Um, then, on September 4th, 1943, Joseph Stalin hold, held a momentous meeting with Sergius and other church hierarchs, during which Stalin, quote-unquote, compassionately listened to the churchmen and allowed patriarchal elections to proceed. And this is listed in uh, Pravda, the Soviet uh, propaganda um, newspaper. Um, in 1943, and it also talks about this this meeting between Stalin and these church leaders. Um, so, at this time, the, the church supported the Soviet government, and it became another avenue avenue of wartime propaganda, motivating the people to stay in the fight against uh, against Hitler. And around this time, schools were were also toning down their anti-religious rhetoric, bringing education into line with the new role of the church in the state. Right, so. All the anti-religious uh, rhetoric of the Soviet government was toned down. And so, why would Stalin accept, adopt such a relaxed stance towards the ROC? You know, this sounds like a real break with Soviet ideology. You know, where they're persecuting and then suddenly they're, they're helping the church. And when the Soviet leader real, allowed the re-establishment of the ROC Patriarchate in September 1943, uh, this would seem as come as a great surprise. You know, it had been founded on anti-religious communism. Uh, this was an age of militant atheism in Russia. Religious faith was believed to hinder the proletariat's goal of communist revolution. And thanks to a 1918 decree, this is just after the communist revolution in Russia, uh, this decree separated church of state. And there was a law of religious associations passed in 1929. And so under this law, a priest had to be registered in order to carry out religious activities. Many churches were destroyed or repurposed for quote-unquote state-friendly activities. Monasteries were closed and priests were forbidden from performing baptisms and many Christians were even killed. And even after Stalin's September 1943 restoration of the Patriarchate, it was sometimes very difficult to open a new church building due to local bureaucracies um, unwillingness to permit a church's construction, often with rather dubious justifications. And among scholars, there have been differing opinions regarding Stalin's motives for restoring the Orthodox Church. Um, some have believed this was done because the original ideas of the Soviet Revolution, for example, a world without capitalism, uh, a fully collective society. And so they were realizing that these ideas were not being realized by the time of the war with Hitler. So they were trying to build their Soviet utopia and everything. But by the time the Great Patriotic War started in 41, they were saying, well, this, this wasn't really working out as we thought it would, right? So this, this is what some scholars believe. Religion was not going to go away completely, nor was communism going to be built exactly as it had been envisioned during the heyday of the Russian of the communist revolution. Uh, so, according to this idea, uh, Stalin had to quote turn from socialist revolutionary to more traditional sources of legitimization for the polity. So, Amir Viner, however, is is he's a scholar that's written on this, and but he kind of goes differently. 
in a different direction. He's of the opinion that the Soviet compromise with religion in 1943 was made because by this time, the worst period of the Great Patriotic War had passed and true communists could look forward to an eventual victory for their ideological revolution. So by the time of 1943, it was kind of... The, the war was turning into for the favor of the of the Soviets, right? So by this time, the Battle of Stalingrad had been won uh, by September forty three. Uh, Stalingrad, the Battle of Stalingrad was won in uh, in January nineteen forty three, um, and so and also and, and even in the uh, the Nazis were suffering setbacks in North Africa, away from the Eastern Front as well, right? They were they were really losing in North Africa. Um, the invasion of Italy had started, so, but more importantly for the Soviets, the, the Nazi offensive in, against the Soviets were, was being pushed back. So according to Viner, they're saying, well, we can realize this communist dream now, so it's, uh, we're, we're winning against the Nazis now, so this is how we're able to compromise with religion. And so, um, according to this view, Stalin didn't urgently need the church as an ally by this time. Um, but now that the worst part of the war was over, a peaceful society was the priority, and restoring the church would help alleviate, help achieve this aim, uh, help achieve order. And finally, Viner argues that by now, decades of anti-religious Soviet rule and ideology had taken their toll on religion. He cites examples of reports in which young people were increasingly atheistic, while only their elders were the ones who kept the faith. Um, because of this, Viner says that Stalin felt religion could be officially rehabilitated in Soviet society without posing a danger to communism's ultimate goals. So he still believed in the idea of a socialist revolution, and he just said, well, to keep order, to keep peace, we'll, we'll, we, we can afford to give religion a pass here. But I, I argue too, though, that in 1943, the fight against Nazi Germany was still very far from being completed. Uh, Soviets still had to fight numerous grueling battles before they achieved victory in Berlin in 1945. There was still a lot of there was still a lot of fighting to be done, even though Nazis had lost Stalingrad and they were being pushed back and everything. Um, oh, and also Kursk as well. I forgot about Kursk. They um, uh, Kursk was uh, fought in the summer of 43, so that was a major defeat for the Germans as well, right? Um, so, but but still, even though the, they still had to fight through through a lot, um, the you know, the D-Day invasion hadn't happened yet, all that stuff. So Nazi Germany was still still holding on at this point. Um, and Orthodox Christianity had also been very, uh, had long been a very important part of Russian culture and identity. And it made it an excellent motivator for patriotism in a time when the Soviet Union was still fighting for its very existence, right? Even by 43. So we must also remember that even in 1942, before the Patriarchate was restored, the church published the previously mentioned book, The Truth About Religion in Russia. So, as, as said earlier, this book stoked religious propaganda against the Nazis and told stories of how the church helped the Soviets resist the Nazi enemy. Thus, contrary to Weiner's argument that Stalin's compromise with the church was unnecessary for the war effort by 1943, the church was still an undeniable asset in the war with Germany. Right? So, um, so I take a bit of a different stance for Weiner uh, on this particular motivation. Know, why Stalin would restore religion. And religion in foreign lands was a second factor for Stalin's rapprochement with the church. Uh, an, an example from December 1942 is notable. And this was when villagers in the Iv Ivanova region uh, petitioned the authorities for a local church so they could be like the followers of the Soviet Union's allies 
British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and American President, Ele um, I almost said Eleanor, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, so quote, uh, I quote from this article here uh, by Daniel Paris. Um, These leaders battle with God's blessing and celebrated a major victory by ordering the ringing of church bells for two days, the, the villagers wrote in their request. So much more importantly, the Germans had been restoring religion in the lands they had conquered from the Soviets, and Daniel Paris notes that the Soviet citizens were aware of this fact. The invading Germans touted religious freedom throughout, so throughout um, Soviet Ukraine as they conquered the land. Right? And so in occupied Ukraine, they were saying that the Ukrainian people were able to, quote, pray in freedom again now that Stalinist atheism was gone. Right. So they um, so the nar the Nazi narrative was they're restoring religion. They, they've taken over um, Ukraine from the Soviets. And so now they're going to store restore religion. Right. And so the newly established German authorities in occupied Ukraine they had given money for church restoration, and the German army, the Wehrmacht, even helped do the work involved in that. However, in contra contrary to the Nazi narrative of religious freedom in Ukraine, uh, all was not free in this area purged of Stalinist atheism. Uh, the Nazi government in Ukraine actually banned religious charity, most seminaries, and church publications. The German security services also spied on Ukrainian priests, church services were banned during harvest time, and the occupiers commanded priests to say prayers for Adolf Hitler on his birthday, April 20th, 1942. So religious freedom was only allowed if it did not conflict with the goals of the Nazis. And after the Germans took over Soviet Ukraine, intense rivalry arose among local religious leaders who attempted to break away from the Russian Orthodox Church, form new organizations, or revive ones which the Soviets had destroyed. As just mentioned, the Nazis exercised much political control over the churches in Ukraine, and they applied this control to local religious intrigues. Erich Koch, uh, the Reichskommissar of occupied Ukraine, had the power to authorize or ban religious denominations. Using this authority, in the latter half of 1942, the German authorities prohibited two religious groups, um, called the Orthodox Autonomous Church in Ukraine, and another one called the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church from Uniting. Uh, just autocephalous, if you hear this uh, term in Eastern Christianity, autocephalous means, you know, they're independent. So autocephalous means, it's basically a Greek word saying basically, like, own head or, or whatever, right? So it has independence from another organization. So the Nazis prevented these two organizations uh, from uniting and forming a uh, one church body. And at the same time, local German rulers, so-called the General Commissars, also restricted church leaders so that their authority did not go beyond their respective zones. The general commissars now appointed church leaders within these zones. Um, church synods, or meetings, between different regions was forbidden, and bishops were forced to live in regional capitals. So this way, the autonomous and autocephalous Ukrainian churches had six dioceses, had, each had six dioceses, or religious regions. Um, this effectively meant the existence of 12 separate church organizations, really 10, if, essentially, since they weren't able to meet, they weren't able to go across and everything, um, and meet with each other, this essentially created 12 little organizations that the Nazis were easy to, that the Nazis could easily control. Uh, Carol Burkhoff suggests that this was a common Nazi practice to politically divide and rule, so to speak, religious organizations to make them compliant. And um, so um, I'm afraid I haven't done so much research with uh, how they treated religious organizations in other countries, like say in France or in occupied Holland and Belgium and places like that. 
Um, but according to Carol Borkoff, this is a sim this is a, a practice they they did throughout. And and really, it's a fa it's you know if somebody if the Nazis want to control um, um, an area they're occupying, you know why wouldn't they want to use religion, right? Because they were doing as I mentioned in the podcast last week. They were or last time they were they were effectively changing the Bible to make to control uh, a, a certain wing of the Lutheran Church. Obviously, they not all Lutherans went along with this, but um, but they were doing this, right? So why wouldn't they use similar tactics in the areas they were conquering, right? Uh, so in addition to the Nazi promise of spiritual, re spiritual freedom in Ukraine, uh, the religious policy there caused a complicated political situation for Stalin. Karol Burkhoff notes as well that prior to the start of the Great Patriotic War, there were three uh, Orthodox churches operating in Ukraine, a local so-called exarch branch of the Russian Orthodox Church, a Ukrainian autocephalous Orthodox Church, and this was an organization created in 1920 with controversial canonical authority or legitimacy, and then there was a third one called the Orthodox Autocephalous Synodal Church, which was a Ukrainian version of the pro-Soviet renovationist church. And so um, I'm, I'm going to go down a, like a little bit more of a rabbit hole here. Um, but um, uh, there was a scholar named Dmitry uh, Povskilovsky, and, um, and he did a two-volume work called The Russian Church Under the Soviet Regime, 1917 to 1982. And in this work, he wrote extensively about schisms within Russian Orthodoxy in the aftermath of the Communist Revolution in November 1917. Um the Renovationist Church was a, quote, Christian Marxist organization that supported the atheist Soviets. Um, they saw Vladimir Lenin as a champion of social truth. Um, it also rebelled against the patriarchal Russian Orthodox Church um, by accusing the ROC's leader, Patriarch Tikhon, of disloyalty, violating canon law, and causing discord. In order to destroy Russian religion, the Soviet government initially supported the Renovationist Church, partially through the transferable the transfer of other factions uh, parishes to them but the but the renovationist church was ultimately unsuccessful because it was not united and it had supported atheistic communism so they were supporting the government but a lot of you know the religious people were saying why are you supporting these guys right um, and this made it quite unpopular as many religious citizens were traditional uh, causing them to reject the Soviet ideal, and then they started going to the patriarchal or the quote-unquote official Russian Orthodox Church under Tikhon, in spite of the disadvantages, disadvantages, um, disadvantageous situation that the ROC was under. And the Soviets also came to realize that it could not destroy religion's importance in society, so it was better to help the church bodies unite rather than playing them against each other. And so later on, the patriarchal locum tenens uh, Sergius, who I mentioned before, he had also signed a declaration of loyalty to the Soviet government in 1927. So even if this was done under duress, the Soviets would have been much more willing to support Sergius instead of a failing renovationist movement. However, the renovationist church did live on for some time, mostly in Central Asia. So, um, so that's what the renovationist uh, church is. And so a Ukrainian wing of the pro-Soviet renovationist church was known as the Orthodox Autocephalous Synodal Church. Uh, I know, I realize that these titles 
are really long. Uh, that's what happens when these factions get together and it's like they um, they cause breakups and everything. So they, all these different organizations form and everything like that, right? Um, so, but in 1927, the Soviet government decided that the traditional patriarchal ROC, which should be the sole representative of orthodoxy, and it thus it forced the two other bodies in Ukraine to dissolve, right? So remember, as I mentioned before, there was a wing of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine that was that was patriarchal or quote unquote official, right? Um, or traditional, I guess would be a better word. So this move would allow the central Soviet authorities based in Moscow, uh, it would allow them greater control over social life in Ukraine through the ROC, which was another Moscow-based organization. The Soviet support of the Russian Orthodox Church was confirmed further with the 1943 reinstatement of the Patriarchy. Nationality was certainly a factor in the religious situation in Nazi-occupied Ukraine and Stalin's reaction to it. Robert Service argues that the ROC was able to help Stalin suppress non-Russian nationalities. As proof of this, he notes that as the Soviet army was retaking Ukraine and Belarusia from, uh, from the Germans, local, local parishes were transferred to the Russian Orthodox Church. So what might have been a Ukrainian church before, the Soviets were going through and transferring those churches to the Russian Orthodox Church. The recognized, uh, the, the church organization recognized um, by the Soviet government. And the Russian church had much to say about the wartime religious situation in occupied Ukraine. The book, The Truth About Religion in Russia, spoke of Bishop Polycarp, Bishop Polycarp Sikorsky. And so this bishop was aligning himself with the German occupiers, according to this book. And also, um, there was the creation of the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church, or the UAOC. Um, the book discredited Sikorsky by calling him a mere secular official without any real religious reasons for his church activities. And while Sikorsky was described as being one time nominally loyal to the Moscow Patriarchate, uh, Sikorsky then took the opportunity to lead Ukrainian Christians when in late 1941 the, uh, an organization called the Fellowship of Ukrainians became part of the Ukrainian Autocephalous Organization, so the UAOC. Uh, Sikorsky was delegitimized in the ROC, this ROC tract, and which and it asserted that a secular body and not canonical authority had granted the autocephalous church its autonomy. When Sikorsky allied with the Germans, this of course placed him and the church at odds with the ROC and the Soviet Union. The ROC called Sikorsky a wolf in sheep's clothing who helped to lead the Ukrainian Orthodox people astray. He also used the Ukrainian language instead of Church Slavonic in his religious services, which had put him further into the anti-Russian and thus the anti-Soviet camp. The UAOC had roots going back to 1919 during the Russian Civil War, but when that war ended, it ended up operating in Polish-controlled parts of Ukraine, where an autonomous Church of Poland was formed in 1924. The autocephalous Ukrainian movement felt the sting of Soviet purges, but it was revived again during the German occupation of Ukraine. Dionysius, the head of the Autonomous Church of Poland, declared Poly Polycarp Sikorsky the Archbishop of the UA UAOC on Christmas Eve 1941, and the church was officially assembled and given German approval in 1942. The UAOC was linked to sentiments of Ukrainian nationalism and separation from Russia, so it gave the German authorities two advantages. First, it would allow them to reduce the influence of the pro-Soviet Russian Orthodox Church, based in Moscow. 
Second, if the UAOC did draw in Ukrainian nationalists, it would provide a place where the Germans could observe them and prevent them from coming too powerful themselves. And, and this is something that I'm going to be talking a little bit later. There were Ukrainian, of course, Ukrainian nationalist um, uh, groups in Ukraine during the time of the of World War II. And there, let me just say, there's a lot of controversy surrounding them <laughs> with, with um, Stepan Bandera and um, other leaders of Ukrainian nationalists at this time. Um, but they also they they may have fought, they may have resisted Soviets and so on. But they all they also did cause some trouble for the Germans at, at some points as well. Um, so according to this information, the if nationalists were going to the UAOC, this allowed the Germans to monitor them, right? Because they're interested in seeing what the uh, nationalists would be doing. Uh, and so to these ends, the Germans intended to de-Russify Ukrainian religion. The Ukrainian language would be used in church services rather than church Slavonic, and priests would be exclusively a U of Ukrainian origin. With the German use of Ukrainian religious organizations that attracted anti-Russian sentiments, it is easy to see why Stalin would want to boost the Russian Orthodox Church's power as a way to resist the enemy on the ideological and social fronts. And when I'm saying this, I'm not saying that the Germans were, um, were like, everything happening in Ukraine was completely under uh, German auspices or German control. Um, the, the, the reality is that the Soviet Union did cause a lot of uh, trouble, a lot of a lot of hardship in what is now Ukraine. Uh, that is reality. So there was obviously a lot of anti-Russian sentiment. You know, there was the the famine in Ukraine, of course, uh, or also otherwise, otherwise known as the Holodomor, right? So and that was before World War II. So when the Germans come in, there's this well, there there's there's resistance of the Soviets, right? There's an opportunity here to resist the Soviets. So I'm not saying that Germans just came in and that Ukrainians, um, people were, you know, there was justifiable anger, uh, against the Soviets. This is in no way, um, justifying the Nazis and their atrocities either, but that is certainly a, um, uh, a reaction and just a, a natural, I, I would say natural, um, opposition to the Soviets at that time, right? So now we go from the historical background of the ROC's role in the Great Patriotic War, and then now we want to look at how that history affects the modern day, and specifically how it forms social memory. But but first we must look at the memory of, of the war in general. Uh, so national traumas like betrayals, genocides, and wars are what makes up uh, what make up a country's so-called traumatic memory. Uh, every individual has memories of unpleasant events, personal afflictions, the loss of loved ones, heartbreaks, and missed opportunities. But traumatic memories that affect more than one person can be built around communal, national suffering. Individual experiences such as national traumas become individual memories. Uh, as they are transmitted through family stories, diaries, education, and the media, these memories spread through society and become remembered even among those who did not personally experience the trauma itself. There is thus an interaction between the individual and his or her society. Memories and perceptions of the past are transmitted between them. This leads to the creation of social discourses and narratives. Uh, and these discourses can be useful to the society by providing political legitimacy, strengthening unity around a common period of hardship, um, 
And, and for example, when individual memories become part of the collective, they are not considered distant history. They're relevant to the society, even if the remembered events occurred before the current generation was born. For example, Nigel Hunt uses the example of the English king Henry VIII, who rebelled against the Catholic Church in the 16th century, establishing his own Protestant movement in England. While one might not see this event as a trauma on par with the Great Patriotic War in Russia, it is still remembered as a very important part of modern English history. And although no one from that period is still alive, the consequences and effects of the king's actions are still alive and active hundreds of years later. We have the Church of England. An example of a national trauma is the siege of Masada Fortress in Israel. Masada's memory goes back to the late first century during an Israelite revolt against the Roman Empire. According to the Jewish-turned-Roman historian Josephus Flavius, uh, rebels holding out at Masada eventually decided to commit suicide rather than surrender to the besieging Romans. Masada's memory was preserved in Jewish literature, including in some mystical texts from the Middle Ages. It became a Jewish or Israeli symbol of resistance to foreign enemies, as well as a reminder of how the Jewish people have been treated throughout history. In 1973, Israel's Prime Minister Golda Meir uh, explained her country's memory of Masada, which had been referred to as a quote-unquote Masada complex. She stated that Israeli or Jewish society also had a pogrom complex and a Hitler complex, reminding the world that her people had often been victims of persecution. Another national trauma was the terrorist attack on the United States on September 11th, 2001. The memory of this trauma is still very fresh in the world's mind, as the words 9-11 are universally and easily understood to mean that event. Running a simple internet search lists many websites and articles trying to answer the question, did 9-11 change everything? Indeed, in the eyes of many, there is certainly a difference between the pre-9-11 world and the one that followed. And there's actually a blog article uh, on Huffington Post that uh, it, it, it talks a bit about this. Um, it was called, uh, it was written by a man named Jason P. Stathlander, and the article is called Then and Now, How 9-11 Changed the United States 13 Years Later. This was written in um, September 8th, 2014. And to further commenting on 9-11, uh, Father Alexander Webster, he was an, he is an Orthodox priest based in Virginia, um, he listed 9-11 along with some other national catastrophes his country, America, suffered, including Pearl Harbor and the JFK assassination. But his attention is certainly devoted to 9-11. Webster even compared America's pain on that day to that of Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, quote, In the morning hours of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, America was crucified with Christ. The Great Patriotic War is Russia's Masada and 9-11. In terms of death toll, it was far more catastrophic than the Israeli and American traumas. Evan Maudsley has noted that the war inflicted much more death on the Soviet Union than upon the United States and the United Kingdom combined. It is estimated that about 27 million Soviet citizens were killed in the war, 10 million were military deaths, and 17 million were civilian. The Great Patriotic War was an apocalyptic battle of annihilation. And before the start of the invasion in June 1941, Hitler's plans for the Soviet Union had already been made. His goal was to kill its leadership, turn its people into slaves, and utterly destroy what he called its system of Jewish Bolshevism. 
Slavery and massacre were, were to be the fate of the Russian Slavic subhumans. This was a term applied to the Russians by racist Nazi ideology. This war would not be conducted in a knightly fashion, to cite Hitler's own words. Mercy would be absent. The laws of war would not be applied. And if a German soldier killed a Russian civilian, it would not matter, and there would be no consequence. Special Einsatzgruppen, or action units, killing squads, went beyond the battlefront and conducted murderous sprees against Jews and communists in the Soviet Union. Stories were told of captured Russians going through immense hardship, being afforded no rights under the, under the, under the Geneva Convention or basic human decency. Now, just as a, a side note, um, we're talking about it is estimated that 27 million Soviet citizens were killed in the war. I, I don't have the exact numbers for by ethnic group. Um, I'm sure somebody has probably done a study of that since the war, uh, but this is saying Soviet citizens, so that, that could mean, obviously, um, uh, non-Russians as well. Because the Soviet Union was not just um, composed of Russians. You know, there were Ukrainians, um, Belarusians in that uh, as an ethnic group as well. Um, and also lots of uh, Central Asian peoples, such as uh, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Bashkirs, and uh, other people as well. So I don't have the exact um, the exact numbers per ethnic group in the Soviet Union, but certainly Russia was certainly um, affected, and much of the battle, much of the uh, combat, was taking place in uh, what is now modern modern Russia. Of course, Belarus and and what is modern Ukraine was also um, affected by the war directly. But the uh, but the Nazi offensive never got as far as never went as far as east. It never and uh, it never went beyond the modern Russian borders beyond Ukraine and Belarus. Right, so it never got to um, the war. Never directly affected Kazakhstan, for example, or Tajikistan, or, or any places like that. Um, so it got about as far as Stalingrad and the Caucasus. That's about as far east as it as it went um so but there were of course uh tajiks and ukrainians uh uzbeks and other um non-russian fighters in in the army and for the soviet union this war of total destruction was an immense intense psychological trauma in the sheer amount of hatred it unleashed in addition to the awful death toll Considering the horrible events that veterans and civilians would remember from the war, and remembering what has been said above about national trauma and collective memory, the situation is ripe for the patriotic war, great patriotic war to hold a significant place in the minds of modern Russians. Thanks to public rituals, the erection of monuments, the, and the use of media, the trauma of the conflict is continually refreshed. And so, but since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there has been debate within Russia about a so-called Russian idea. How are we going to define the Russian nation and its relationship with the rest of the world? But while looking ahead, Russian nationalism has also separated links to the past, and the Great Patriotic War became one of these the most important memories. In 1994 and 1996, the All-Russian Center for Public Opinion Research conducted surveys to which the Russian the Russian public replied with the opinion that the Soviet victory in World War II was the most important event in Russian history. Notice how I emphasize Soviet history. Remember how I mentioned before that the Soviet Union was not just Russians, but Russians in these surveys were looking at Russian history and what they saw, thought were the most important events in Russian history. They looked at the Soviet victory. Right? 
The Christianization of Rus and conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy in 988, Peter the Great's 18th century westernizing reforms, and the Communist Revolution of 1917 were not as important as the Great Patriotic War, according to the survey. Spanning across 11 time zones, Russia is an extremely large country, it's the largest in the world, and it has many different cultures, languages, and symbols within it. Which symbol best represents Russia? Many scholars have commented on this. The Orthodox would certainly be one possibility, but though it may be important part of, a very important part of Russian culture, as we talked about before, the majority of religious people in Russia are Orthodox. Um, anywhere you go in Russia, you will very likely see an Orthodox um, a church. You will see Orthodox culture. Um, many Orthodox people abroad, uh, such as here in Canada, are Orthodox, right? So the, so the Russian Orthodox Church is very significant. Um, but though it may be an important part of Russian culture, what about the significant traditionally Muslim population in Russia? You know, places like in uh, Tatarstan, um, uh, Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, uh, Chechnya, of course, Ingushetia, these are mostly Muslim, these are traditionally Muslim areas in Russia. So uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, yeah, it's an important part of their country, but is it an important part of the culture in that, in those individual areas? So, could St. Petersburg, Peter's, Peter the Great's great window to the west, be a symbol of Russia as a bridge between the western and eastern worlds, perhaps? That's perhaps another um, another second image that would be important to Russian culture. The 19th century historian uh, Vasily Kluchevsky suggested that Russia's boundless land defined the country. To him, it was a powerful symbol of Russia's unknowable spirit, thanks to its seemingly limitless freedom and vastness contrasted with the claustrophobia he said of western europe so now we have three possible symbols so the russian orthodox church saint petersburg and russia's space however the great patriotic war is a more powerful site of memory for nation building that event gravely threatened the soviet state in a war of annihilation with nazi germany which was so opposed to communism and the country's very existence even more importantly, the conflict killed tens of millions of people, and it broke up countless families from across the whole Soviet Union. The war did not discriminate. Virtually everyone was affected in some way. For example, as I mentioned before, non-Russians, such as Ukrainians and even Mongolians, fought, fought against the German invaders, including 36 Chechens, who were named Heroes of the Soviet Union for their valor in fighting. And, it, and propaganda was touted in Soviet Uzbekistan, calling on Uzbeks to fight for their fellow Soviet comrades, which included Russians, Belarusians, and Ukrainians. So this is an example of Uzbeks, Turkic group, being called to um, fight alongside Russians and Ukrainians, which were Slavic people, completely unrelated, right, ethnically. However, um, it might, we since I mentioned non uh, non Russian ethnic groups within the Soviet Union, um, it shouldn't be forgotten that despite the efforts of non Russians against the Nazis, many did collaborate with them, including some Ukrainians and Chechens. Um, in harsh response, uh, Stalin uh, deported peoples en masse. Robert Service notes that Crimean Tatars, Ingushi, Chechens, Kalmyks and other ethnicities were forcibly moved into harsh areas, suffering this fate of so-called national traitors. Robert Service also mentions that as the war went on, the achievements of the Russian people were emphasized over the, over the achievements of non-Russians in the war. 
So after that little side note, um, not every Russian is a particularly devout follower of the Russian Orthodox Church either. So we talked a bit about the Russian Orthodox Church being a symbol of Russianness, but not every Russian is Orthodox. Um, so, and uh, later we'll touch on the difference between identifying as Orthodox and actually practicing Orthodoxy. Um, and also, many others will not care about the metaphysical aspects of Russians' open countryside. Uh, I mean, I kind of look at the idea, and it's like, you know, I've been, I've been to Russia before, and it, it's, it is a beautiful country. Um, there are there's many fantastic places um, to see. I've seen some of them already. Um, I was just there for a few weeks, but I already got to see a good part of it, or, or like, uh, like a little bit of it, and it was beautiful. It was in northwestern Russia is a beautiful place, and there are lots of other places like Altai and everything. But you know, as a Canadian who lives in the second largest country in the world, I look at Canada's um, great wide space because we have a lot of just like Russia, we have a lot of mountains, we have a lot of open space. Um, many of our uh, countryside is sparsely populated. Um, you know, there are lots of beautiful places here, um, but. Do I automatically think, do all Canadians automatically think of our great mountains and spaces? Um, that's actually an interesting study. I haven't, you know, that I haven't really studied the, studied that aspect of Canadian identity. Um, we certainly take, I would say with a lot of Canadians take a lot of pride in mountain, in the mountains and everything, forests and everything that we have. Um, but whether it goes to this metaphysical thing of uh, the Canadian spirit, you know, I like, you know, Jasper National Park is a part of the Canadian soul or the, uh, yeah, I don't know if it would go that deep. I like the mountains. I like that hiking in Jasper and everything like that. But, um, and it's a beautiful place, but uh, don't get me wrong. And I'm happy that it is in my country, but, um, but so anyway, that's a little bit of a sidetrack, but will every Russian think of, the Altai and be like, oh great, you know, this is this is my identity as a Russian. You know, maybe not every Russian will think of the Altai and think of it as being that's the soul of my country, you know. Um, but but Russians will relate to an event that threatened their families, livelihood, and their country. The Great Patriotic War is perfect for this. As we studied earlier, memory keeps the Great Patriotic War alive for anyone who did not do directly experience the trauma. This, along with how the war caused suffering for so many people in a multi-ethnic country like the Soviet Union, is what makes the Great Patriotic War such a powerful event around which modern Russian national identity can be built. Or national unity as well. The legacy of the conflict was used in the Soviet period, when it was used to bring legitimacy to the... 1917 communist revolution in the Soviet system. Uh, resistance against the Nazi invader also gave the Soviet Union a claim of commitment to world peace. Uh, scholars have noted that in modern times, Russian President Vladimir Putin does the same thing with the war's remembrance. Elizabeth Wood has stated that the Great Patriotic War serves as a foundation myth, a point around which the Russian state grows stronger and constru can construct an identity and sense of purpose. Such an identity was especially important in Russia at the start of Putin's presidency in the year 2000. And this was when Russian society was, had, was going through a lot of turmoil. Uh, the Soviet Union's collapse in the previous decade, had there was, there was a lot of problems after that. Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, um, and there was a lot of uh, economic hardship in the former Soviet Union, not just Russia, but in Ukraine and, and other areas. 
And the memory of the Great Patriotic War connects Russia's modern identity and national soul to its spiritual ancestor, the Soviet Union, which was tested, so to speak, in the fires of conflict that brought it into great power status, to use Putin's own words. As the Soviet Union did before it, Russia gains prestige and legitimacy from the war. On May 9th, 2005, the 60th Victory Day celebration, and uh, Victory Day is uh, celebrated on May 9th, uh, celebrating the end of World War II in Europe. It's a national Russian holiday. Uh, and on this day, in May 9th, 2005, Putin said that the anniversary marked, quote, the day on which the world was saved from fascism and tyranny. The German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, was invited to these celebrations. And on May 3rd, 2000, the Russian Orthodox Chapel of Unity was inaugurated at Kursk, one of the war's major battle sites. Putin, who had, been elect, who had been elected but was not yet officially president at this time, rang a bell with the Ukrainian leader Leonid Kuchma and Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. This event symbolically strengthened relations between these so-called blood brothers of the former Soviet state. From these two examples, it is evident that even though it was the Soviet Union and not modern Russia per se that fought the Nazis, the Russian state benefits politically from remembering the conflict. However, in addition to bringing political advantages, memorialization of Soviet efforts against Hitler's Germany also provides moral lessons for modern Russian society. It encourages people to act in society's best interest at the expense of one's own well-being. It also reminds society to stay strong and united against all adversity and enemies. The president has used the experiences of his own family during the war to teach children how to show how Quote, heroism, courage, and patriotism in the face of any challenge. The war becomes like a fable or an inspirational epic from which people can be encouraged by looking at the example of wartime heroes. The Great Patriotic War is an excellent source of national myths. The war was very destructive and, as we have seen, affected tens of millions of people. Thus, it comes with an already neat, neatly packaged narrative of very real suffering. Uh, it contains the themes of personal sacrifice, heroism, national unity, and it was fought in many places within Russia's expansive territory. So the war's memory uh, contains a common remembrance of suffering, great leaders, and fighters, as well as physical locations where people can stand and, quote, be part of the battles. All of these things are very vital to a, any society's remembering, and Russia's memory complex of the Great Patriotic War is no exception. And... To say this, um, that it's it's part of a Russian modern narrative and everything, you know, I certainly don't mean to cheapen um, everything that is happening at all, or that everything that happened in in uh, modern Russia during the during the Great Patriotic War, there was real suffering. People were dying. You know, this is not meant to uh, cheapen uh, anything. So I can certainly understand why this. Um, it's easily understandable why this. War is such an important event in modern Russian uh, memory because it's it's more than it's more than just a you know if everybody wants to say it's a fake nationality or fake identity uh, based on the war I, it's I don't know I wouldn't go that far I wouldn't say that um, because that is a very real um, event and and even in the Western world in Canada and the United States and Great Britain World War II is also very important to to the Western countries as well and as we said the so the Soviet Union suffered many more casualties than than America did for example and um, 
so to say that you know talking about this being a, a narrative or anything that may be true and everything but there's some real um real basis for that narrative so now we're going to talk about the russian orthodox church as a force in russian society and patriotism today um and and religion and this is important because religiosity is often concerned with communal belief and action and it's often a times it's often a part of ethnic identity so faith goes far beyond the individual level as Mar marietta stepanyans um, has said in russia orthodox christianity has long been a unifying force and a symbol of russianness this quote was written in a wartime church prop church produced propaganda work quote the Russian Orthodox Church has always lived the life of the people. It is united with its people. Their sorrows are its sorrows. Their joys are its joys. This attitude is still evident in the post-war period. According to another 1994 survey, the Russian Orthodox Church was the people's most trusted organization. Orthodoxy also offered an alternative to other identity-forging ideologies. Thomas Bremer suggests that, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, religion provided something besides communism to provide life with meaning. Orthodoxy was able to replace communism, filling the need for a national idea which with, with which to move forward to a new national future. Also, Orthodoxy allowed adherents to distinguish themselves from Russian Muslims as well as the Catholics and Protestants of Western Europe. Russia's Orthodox identity has enjoyed centuries to grow and be constructed. Kiev and Rus, a medieval, Rus a medieval state that consisted of parts of uh, modern Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, converted to Eastern Christianity in 988. In the 16th century, Russia, then it was centered around Moscow, so you'll often see um, Muscovy. You'll, you'll hear it called Muscovy instead of Russia at that time. Uh, Muscovy considered itself the Third Rome. This was the last bastion of true Christianity after the apostasy of the Western, Roman, Christianity and the fall of Constantinople to the Muslim Ottoman Turks. And during the Tsarist period, there was the idea that Russia should be governed through the triad concept of autocracy, orthodoxy and nationality. Ludmila Gatagova suggests that during this time period, peasants were more likely to cry out, we are orthodox, identifying more with their religion than with their local village or region. Orthodox Russians would also stand firm on this uh, fixture of, of their society, for, despite their power, the atheistic Soviets could never completely break the people's relationship with the ancient faith. Daniel Paris has noted that during the wartime's religious revival, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Soviet citizens publicly confessed orthodoxy. And Daniel Paris also speaks about uh, the 1937 Soviet census. So this is four years before the Great Patriotic War. And according to this survey, many Soviet citizens were still identified as religious, despite the state's previously 20, previous 20 years of anti-religious crackdowns. Thus, in many ways, the religious community's culture and personal significance endured more than the atheistic ideology of communism. Nina Tumarkin emphasized this fact when she wrote an article about plans for a war memorial on Poklanaya Hill. And, and Poklanaya Hill is a location where, in 1812, Russian forces refused to surrender to Napoleon. But no final decision was made due to the lack of adequate designs. 
This process was repeated multiple times until the Soviet Union's collapse in 1991, and still, no final memorial design was implemented, though there were many close contenders and quote-unquote false winners. Tamarkin concluded her article with an anecdote from June 22, 1991, uh, the 50th anniversary of the start of the Great Patriotic War. And this was when she attended an Orthodox Requiem Mass for the Great Patriotic War's victims. Fifty years after Hitler's invasion began, a simple wooden cross stood on Puklanaya Hill instead of a Soviet-era monument. Tamarkin ended her story by saying that no matter what government was in power, or what monuments were built, or not built, Russians would always pray for those who got killed in the war with Nazi Germany. The Soviet government's failure to completely suppress faith should be noted. Harvey Fireside, in his book Icon and Swastika, suggests that for a time religion was actually somewhat valuable to the Soviet state, even before the war. He says that in the 1930s the Soviets embarked on a mission to strengthen family values. The Russian church's belief system was useful in this because it forbade easy divorce, abortion, and other things considered harmful to family life. At least, this was true for a while, as the Soviet family was envisioned to be one without faith. The church was simply an aid in this direction for a time. Fireside had also argued that communism's direct attacks against religion were not always effective. He mentions the League of the Godless. This was an organization created in 1925, and it purged communists who still had at least some semblance of religious belief. But the League was heavy-handed in its anti-religious propaganda, as evidenced by one example in which the League obscenely mocked the clergy. Some Soviet citizens said that such emotionally charged irrational attacks drove them towards faith, or at least towards sympathy with the church. There was also personal Christian belief in the sense of identity it, it provided. Even though the state might have tried to oppress religion, faith would survive it if it was strong enough in individuals. The government's attack on religion made some feel more connected with the church, as the state was threatening something very near and dear to a Russian Christian's heart. Also, for those who carried on in their faith, collectivization and other Soviet programs were considered small crosses to bear when compared to the promise of a joyful afterlife with God. Ultimately, Fireside argues that the League and the ruling anti-religious anti ideology were not as successful as first hoped, especially by the time of Patriarch Sergius's election in September 1943. And also, something to keep in mind, too, um, that... Christianity promises that through any persecution or other hardship that God will be there for a Christian, right? And also, um, the, the Christian is also promised in the Bible that persecution will come, right? So that forms a, an uh, a social memory of a way in, Christian in Christians uh, by itself, right? So the Christians will have their own social memory. So if a Christian group is being persecuted by a government, or, or even by a society, they will look at that and say, Jesus was right when he said this. It's happening. This has confirmed my faith, right? So that's just a, a little bit of a personal observation um, when, uh, when we're talking about governmental um, persecution of the Christian faith as, as it was for Orthodox Christians in the Soviet Union. And the modern numbers of Orthodox adherents adherents show that orthodoxy is still a very powerful cultural phenomenon. In the 1990s, about half of the entire Russian population would, quote, call themselves believers. 
This was despite a low rate of worship service attendance and religious practice. In a world value survey taken in 1995, only about 51.5% of Russian believers attended services and only 8.3% reported going once a month or more. A decade later, in 2004, another poll suggested that, quote, only 3% attended religious services regularly. This suggests that the relationship of many Russians with orthodoxy was a matter of heredity, habit, and national identity rather than personal conviction. Bremer says that confessing orthodoxy is considered the same as confessing Russianness. Orthodoxy is a symbol of being Russian, in addition to being a beacon of, of morality. The ROC has resumed a central role in Russian society since communism's demise. The state assisted the Russian Orthodox Church in becoming the dominant church in Russia, thanks to legislation passed in September 1997, entitled On Freedom of Conscience and Religious Associations. The Orthodox Church was given preferential treatment compared to other religious bodies, including tax concessions. This is despite some differences in opinion between the church and the Russian state, such as over the Chechen war, abortion, and the repossession of church property. And uh, Irena, uh, Irena Popkova uh, has noted that in the mid-1990s, many Russians still identified as Orthodox. Most of them, again, were not particularly religious. Um, thus, they did not necessarily push through the ROC's wishes on abortion, for instance. Popkovka did, however, mention that the church did make some gains under the presidency of Dmitry Medvedev, um, who is said to be more devout than the current Russian president, Vladimir Putin. In August 2000, the Russian Orthodox Church produced a document called The Social Concept, outlining its priorities and how it would relate to the government. It was resolved that the church would involve itself in social programs, would provide for the military spiritual needs, give moral guidance to the Russian people, and encourage, quote, patriotic education. In section two of the social concept, the church and this was the church and nation chapter, the social concept urges Orthodox Christians to be active patriots. Citizens became such when they were actively involved in their government, defending their country, and developing their national culture and people self-awareness, is a quote from the document. The church does stress the universal nature of Christianity in that it does not depend on an individual's ethnicity or nationality, but on the faithful's common faith in Christ and baptism. There's another quote from the document. But the church also commands its members to have loyalty to their country and to obey political authorities. The concept quotes the cleric John of Kronstadt to make this point. John of Kronstadt is quoted as saying, Love the earthly homeland. It has raised, distinguished, honored, and equipped you with everything. The ROC outlines a plan for this by teaching the flock to be moral patriots and by making the nation's trials its own struggles. And in the religious organization's outline for its cooperation with the government, it lists, quote, spiritual, cultural, moral, and patriotic education and formation and the care of the military and law enforcement workers and their spiritual and moral education alongside charitable, cultural, and peacekeeping initiatives. This religiously encouraged love for nation easily transitions to military service. The social concept continues with this. In all times, the church has called upon her children to love their homeland on earth and not to spare their lives to protect it if it was threatened. 
The document then mentions examples from Russian history when the nation was threatened and the church blessed or exhorted its defenders to fight, such as during the 1380 Battle of Kulikovo against the Tatars and the 1612 War against invading Poles. It also gives us the words of the Napoleonic-era Saint Philaret of Moscow. Saint Philaret says, if you avoid dying for the honor and freedom of, your, of the fatherland, you will die a criminal and a slave. Die for the faith in the fatherland, and you will be granted life and a crown in heaven. Surprisingly, in, the uh, surprisingly, in my opinion, the social concept it actually doesn't specifically mention the Great Patriotic War. Despite its importance to Russian memory, this social concept document doesn't mention it, which I found very interesting. But with its patriotic mindset and goals for society, the social concept gives legitimacy to a religious patriotic memory of the conflict or any other which, con which threatened the Russian nation. This is even if the Great Patriotic War is not explicitly mentioned. To encourage these patriotic values, the ROC has established formal relationships with the Russian military through a March 1994 agreement with the Defense Ministry. And so uh, this document, it's called uh, the Statute of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, produced in 2000. And through this initiative, the military would learn about Orthodox Christianity, which was one of the church's top priorities in the wake of communism's collapse. Part of this was a synodical institution named, this is a long, um, long organization name, like, like a lot of other government organizations in any country, Department of Relations with the Armed Forces and Law Enforcement Agencies. So uh, the acronym for that is just Draftly. So Draftly was created by the church's ruling Holy Synod in, on July 16, 1995, and it offers spiritual ministry to the Russian army, encouraging their Christianity as well as their patriotism. It would also help develop places of worship for military personnel. The church, the church department's responsibilities were expanded in 1996. From now on, it would also provide social assistance to soldiers and their families. Over the years, the Great Patriotic War has appeared in Draftly's memory. In 2003, the organization's director, Father Dmitry Smirnov, connected Jesus' words to the conflict. He quoted John 15:13, in which Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Katya Richter's does not believe that Jesus' teaching here refers to sacrificing oneself for his country, but in the draftly context it does, in which fellow citizens are known as friends. The social concept supports this interpretation, and it, as it says that Christian patriotism involves loving one's ethnic brothers by blood, um, the social concept supports this interpretation, as it says that Christian patriotism involves loving one's ethnic brothers by blood, as well as one's fellow state citizens. And so now we'll, we'll, we'll delve a little bit deeper into the Russian Orthodox memory of the Great Patriotic War. And so we can find some of this on Draftly's website. And on that website, you one can find readings about heroes of both the Great Patriotic War and the Russian Orthodox faith. One article by Anastasia Yakovleva, titled Sacred War, praises the clergy who fought battles by praying for victory, tending to soldiers' wounds and broken hearts, hearing confession, and even picking up weapons themselves. Orthodox clergy caught in the Nazi-occupied zones are also mentioned in this article. Their importance emphasized as, quote, the only link between the, populism, between the population and patriotism. Some of these... Uh, clergy, 
joined local anti-fascist units, earning them awards for their partisan activities. Everyone had a role in the fighting, including the church, which blessed the fight against the, quote, pathetic descendants of the enemies of Orthodox Christianity, as the article quotes Metropolitan Sergius on the first day of the Nazi invasion. The stories in this article have a common theme. Someone's called up for duty on the front, serves as a radio operator or in some other role, and then he joins the clergy or enters a monastery after the war. Some were religious... Some were already religiously active in the war's early stages, but others, such as John Dmitrovich Pavlov, entered the war after having lost his spirituality. He lived such a life until he discovered an evangelical book in the ruins of Stalingrad, and this allowed him to rediscover his faith, and this caused him to enter the Moscow Spiritual Seminary in 1953. There's the story of an artist as well, John Mikhailovich Voronov, who vowed to God that he would enter a monastery if he survived the war's hellfire. And another priest, Fyodor Puzanov, directly impacted the war by collecting 500,000 rubles and donating the money to partisans near Leningrad in order to create a tank unit. A nun describes her experiences in the struggle for Königsberg, where monks gathered, fasted, and prayed before battle was joined. The article shows photos, photos of priests in religious vestments while also wearing their numerous military medals, including uh, medals called uh, For the Capture of Budapest, for the victory against Germany, and partisan of the Great Patriotic War. We've already spent some time analyzing, we've just looked over the social concept, but it's worth studying the Russian Orthodox Church's general perspective on war. Achieving peace is the ultimate goal of any military action or conflict, according to the document section, section 7, paragraph 5. This paragraph complements paragraph 3, which commands certain rules to be followed in war, uh, in order for it to be just. But the most important part of this section is the biblical justification for fighting in war. Just like Father Dmitry Smirnov of Drafli, this paragraph quotes John 15, 13. Remember um, uh, when Jesus is talking about greater love has no man than this, that he should lay his life down for his friends. This verse was also a rallying cry for the Russian Orthodox Church during the, during the war. In 1941, Metropolitan Sergius applied this scripture to any soldier that sacrificed himself for his country. Our native land is our home, said another religious piece, and everyone knows that if a thief comes to make free in the home, one must, must, one must not expect any good from it. The Metropolitan of Kiev preached... By loving his country, by serving his country, by defending his country, the Christian performs one of the duties of his earthly mission. Patriotism was listed as a Christian attribute, alongside charity and love for the poor. This Christian patriotism would not only manifest itself in combat, but also on the home front. Monetary donations, prayer, comforting victims, and manufacturing weapons was also considered, uh, were also considered holy activities in the war against Hitler. The church commanded the faithful to pray for those who had fallen in combat, even for those soldiers who were irreligious. For example, it quotes, May the just and merciful judge, God, reward our warriors with an imperishable crown for their heroic sacrifice, and upon us who are zealous in our prayer for the prayers for them, may he bestow his grace. Sixty years after the end of the War of Germany, in May 2005, the late Patriarch Alexei II gave an address gave an address, uh, starting yet again with greater love has no man than this. He reiterated Putin's memory of World War II, seeing it as a, quote, unifying event for modern times. 
But the patriarch also turned remembrance into a call for action when he urged listeners to, quote, be worthy of the memory of the war. The ROC has held celebrations and remembrance services for the war in numerous parishes worldwide. From Australia to the United States, a common theme was evident in the church's report on the services performed in 2014. They were calls for international cooperation, but they were also reminded attendees of the historical historic fight against fascism. This is especially pertinent, considering that these ceremonies occurred shortly after the start of the still ongoing crisis in Crimea and Ukraine as a whole. Remember, this is 2014. And so that brings us directly into another topic, the memory of the Great Patriotic War in Ukraine today. Of course, this is just going to be a very quick uh, summary of that topic because there's there's a lot more than I'm than I uh, than I'm mentioning today. But um, but we'll start with that. We'll continue on with that. And the the current turmoil in Ukraine plays into our discussion of religious memory of the Great Patriotic War. Um, with regards to Ukraine, much of it revolves around the Ukrainian-Russian cultural dichotomy within, and, and conflict in, 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 many, in, in the eyes of many. It is necessary to give a fair, account, fair amount of background here. Ivan Kachanovsky has noted how across Ukraine there, were, there are very different perspectives of the Great Patriotic War. Although many from Western Ukraine were pressed into the Red Army, the Soviet Army, many others were also active in Stepan Bandera's Ukrainian insurgent army, known as the UPA or the UPA, and also uh, Stepan Bandera's wing of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. This is known as the OUNB, or you'll, you'll hear it called OUN. According to Kachanovsky, many Ukrainians from the western region of Galicia or Halichna were also in the ranks, many voluntarily, of the Schutzstaffel or the SS Division Galicia and other German units. Ethnic Ukrainians formed the vast majority in these particular organizations, such as SS Galicia, while they made up a much smaller proportion of membership in the Soviet Red Army and partisan groups that were active in Ukraine. And again, this is not to say that Ukrainians were not active in the Red Army contributing to the victory against the Nazis, because they certainly were. It just happens to be that according to Kachanovsky's report, that the amount, the proportion of Ukrainian, uh, ethnic Ukrainians was much higher in these German organizations that they were part of, rather than in the Soviet Army or partisan groups active in Ukraine. That's, that is all that is saying. Thus, it's hardly surprising that when Kachanovsky says that Ukraine's divided opinions regarding the war are regionalized, he notes that many Eastern Ukrainians see Western Ukrainians as fascists, while the West perceives the East as Stalinist and pro-Soviet. Ethnicity is also a factor, with Ukrainians far more likely to support Bandera's nationalists, while those with Russian ancestry are more likely to have positive views towards Stalin. Ukraine's political parties have taken similar stances. Nationalist parties such as Svoboda saw the Galicia Division and the UPA as freedom fighters, while pro-Soviet groups like the Communist Party of Ukraine commemorated the Red Army and protested the remembrance of Bandera. Both sides have been guilty of covering up or ignoring the crimes that their supported factions committed during the war, including massacres and mass, and mass expulsions. However, it must be mentioned as well that the polls Kachanovsky cited suggested that almost no one in Ukraine supported the Nazis or Adolf Hitler, regardless of their background or political preference. 
This rivalry between Westerners versus Easterners, pro-Ukrainians versus pro-Russians, has been especially apparent since 2014. On the ROC news site, pravoslavi.ru, there are a slew of articles on this subject. While many of these articles have been collected from other agencies, they give a valuable insight into how the Russian church perceives the tumultuous situation in Ukraine. One piece from February 2014 suggested that Ukraine was being duped into accepting domination under the European Union, which the article depicted as a failing debt-ridden organization. It also said that the Ukrainian opposition was selling its soul to fascism, overthrowing the current government and refusing to cut ties from the, quote, most, na most radical neo-Nazi elements on the streets of Kiev. A November, 24, a November 2014 article reported on the UN General Assembly's passage of an anti-fascist resolution that was meant to provide the meant to prevent the glorification of neo-Nazism and fascism and the quote spread in the many parts of the world spread in many parts of the world of various extremist political parties, including neo-Nazi and skinhead groups. It was notable that the Ukrainian, American, and Canadian governments did not vote in favor of this resolution, while many others simply abstained. The Ukrainian state's response was that it could not support an anti-fascist resolution until the crimes of Stalinism were also recognized, acknowledged, and equally condemned, as according to that report. Pravoslavi Dataryu posted another article describing how, in March 2016, the Ukrainian government approved the renaming of Moscow Avenue in Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, in honor of Stepan Bandera. The piece mentions how previous Ukrainian governments have also tried to honor Bandera by declaring him a hero of Ukraine, despite his movement's collaboration with the Nazis and massacre of ethnic Poles. Such actions by the Ukrainian government are in stark contrast to those from the pro-Russian side. For example, a law was passed in Russia just before the 2014 Victory Day holiday, a law which severely punished any glorification of Nazism or revisionist pro-fascist sentiments or statements regarding the Nuremberg trials. Under this new legislation, it even became a crime to intentionally, quote, spread false information about the USSR's activities during World War II. This was a prime example of historical memory having a very real effect on the present. The fear of Western Ukrainian fascism, quote-unquote, has been an especially strong fear for Alexander Zakharchenko, the leader of the breakaway Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, in eastern Ukraine. On November 9th, 2015, this was the 77th anniversary of the Kristallnacht in, or, or Kristallnacht in Hitler's Germany. Zaharchenko wrote on his official website about a rise in European fascist movements, the, quote, persecution of Russian culture in the Baltic countries, and what he called the Nazi Ukrainian government that was waging a war against his republic. He called on all his Donetsk citizens to resist the, quote, brown plague of modern Nazism. And a few days before this post, Zaharchenko spoke against Benderovsi, a clear reference to the Bandera movement's activities during the Great Patriotic War, and an attempt to link Bandera with the current powers in Western Ukraine. So what does this have to do with the Ukrainian religious situation? We have seen how nationalism and politics influenced events surrounding the Ukrainian Autonomous Orthodox Church, the UAOC, and other organizations existing in Ukraine during the Great Patriotic War. Moving now to forward, moving forward now to modern times, Patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church wrote in August 2014 of how the civil war in Ukraine has affected religious life. He spoke, he spoke about Orthodox clergymen being killed in the fighting, 
and suffering abuse and threats what he called from what he called units in schismatics and units is 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 a term that's used to describe ukrainian greek catholics so uh is you'll also hear the term ukrainian catholic church and so what this essentially the Kolsnod's version of the um ukrainian orthodox ukrainian catholic church its theology is is roman catholic essentially it's it's catholic it, it recognizes the pope as an authority religious authority and so on but it's ritual it's um um, the way it looks inside, the way the churches are painted with icons and everything like that, it's very Eastern. So it's kind of like, I, I would say, a very basic understanding of it. Basically, you take an Orthodox Eastern Christian church and you you don't change what it, how it looks and you just make it Catholic. Uh, otherwise, it's Catholic, right? So that's that's what that is. So the, the term units, it means kind of refers to the a union between eastern right christianity and western ortho and western christianity right but it, it sometimes it is used in a sometimes it's seen as an insult towards um um towards ukrainian greek catholics right and so uh so anyway just aside from that definition there um so patriarch Kirill talked about um orthodox clergy being attacked and threatened by um, people in the in the Ukrainian uh, Catholic Church, um, but also they the uh, according to him they were also suffering threats from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchate. So essentially, um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church. Kirill lamented the fact that southern and eastern Ukraine used to be devoutly Orthodox regions, but now they were under attack. Yet despite its hardships in Ukraine, he held up the Russian Orthodox Church as an unbiased, non-political organization that helped thousands of needy refugees. In January 2016, Kirill stated that the need for the schismatics, or again, the, what he, that's the word he used for the Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian Catholics, to rejoin the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the only church body in Ukraine that the Orthodox world recognized as canonically valid. Another article posted on Pravoslavi.ru went further, accusing elements of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church of supporting Stepan Bandera and the UPA. Michael Averko, the author of this article, gave a brief overview of the Ukrainian Catholic Church's development in the, in the 16th century when present-day Ukraine was under Polish domination. Averko suggested that it that it is very difficult to be an Orthodox Christian in the current crisis, leading to an increasing distance between Ukraine and Russia. All of these articles point to the political divide which even Kachinovsky studied. Ukraine is not only divided between those who support the Soviet or Russian side against the Ukrainian nationalist or Bendera camp. Uh, there's also division along religious lines, with the Moscow Patriarchate pitted against the Ukrainian Catholics and the so-called schismatics from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kiev Patriarchate and the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church. These religious political tensions are explicitly shown in reports of violence against Moscow patriarchal churches and their parishioners, some of them being committed by hard-right nationalists. In a piece for U.S. News, Hannah Gase uh, uh, states how, for many, church membership has become an identifier of national allegiance with believers and clergy taking sides. 
She argues that multiple historical events led to this interfaith strife in Ukraine starting from before 2014. She mentions competition between three different Ukrainian denominations after the Soviet Union's breakup. The Moscow Patriarch's claim... Moscow Patriarchate's claim that he had religious authority over Ukraine, and Patriarch Kirill's assertion in 2009 that, quote, the Russian world isn't dominated by its, isn't limited by its borders. And so, uh, Kirill's uh, opinion that the Russian world isn't dominated, isn't limited by its borders, this is a perfect opportunity to go into the idea of Russia as a sacred space. Um, and remember how I talked a bit about that before, where that old histor that historian from the nineteenth century was talking about Russia being a wide open space, and you know this is great, and you know this is this is part of the Russian soul, right? But uh, this, it, this is not quite the same. This is the idea of Russia kind of being a holy land. And after analyzing the regional nature of the strife in Ukraine, it's worth returning to the concept of sacred space. Um, as we've observed, during the war, the Russian Orthodox Church called for Christians to defend holy Russia against fascism. But in the modern, article, modern articles we just studied, there's the perception that Russia and the Orthodox world are somehow still under threat. In them, uh, so-called fascists and in them, so-called fascists and schismatics in Western Ukraine, as well as other foreign bodies like the European Union, were all mentioned as potential dangers to the Russian Orthodox world. Since the fall of communism, the ROC has expressed concerns of, quote, corrupting Western influences impacting Russian society. Alexei II, the previous patriarch, said in the year 2000 that Western culture was infiltrating Russia, bringing sins such as pornography and hedonism with it. The West's concepts of personal liberty and religious individualism were even perceived as part of a conspiracy against the Russian people. And John Anderson... Um, who wrote an article about Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church, um, he notes that some ROC members who saw... Um, he, he mentioned some ROC members who, quote, uh, believe, uh, see Orthodoxy as the last obstacle to the creation of a new liberal world order. And so the fear of this new liberal world order... Uh, brings to mind the previously mentioned Muscovite concept of the Third Rome, in which the Russian world was the, quote, last stronghold of true Christianity. The ROC's leadership saw the West's Reformation and Enlightenment-influenced philosophies cascading through political institutions and manifesting themselves in democracy. Many Russian church leaders stressed that they did not have anything against democracy in principle, as long as it did not negatively influence Russian society with its inherent spirit of competition, they said. These factors, along with the Eastern-Western Christian split of the, the Great Schism in the 11th century, culminated into an inherent mistrust among ROC members of Western institutions and culture. Russia has been imagined as a sacred space well before the Great Patriotic War and current times. Emma Wittes suggests that the medieval Kievan Rus, the earliest manifestations of what could be called a, quote, Russian land, was more a sphere of influence rather than an actual state. Echoing Patriarch Kirill's comments, Patriarch Kirill's comments in 2009 about the Russian world, the concept of Rus surpassed the political entity for its meta-political meta conception be, it became part of an ecclesiastical geography. A religious and cultural symbol even after the government dissolved due to regionalism and Lithuanian and Mongol conquest. 
Tsar Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, continued this tradition when he was made Tsar of all Rus in the 16th century. This idea of the Russian space went on into the Soviet period. Wittes has analyzed a 1947 film called Tale of the Siberian Land, in which the boundless Siberian territory is eventually conquered and subdued when Russians venture into it and then forge factories and towns within. Moscow is the beginning and the end of this space, making it Russia's epicenter. And so, also important of the, in the ROC's patriotic memory are so-called places of memory. Pierre Nora describes such locations, or lieu de mémoire, uh, as as quote places that enable feelings of identity and identification to crystallize as we saw earlier with the fortress of masada in israel locations such as monuments uh, offer concrete visible and touchable links to the past and they connect current political bodies to previous legacies they provide common areas where the relationship between a country's citizens their government and their history are physically embodied according to nora the lieu de mémoire <laughs> Uh, I can speak a little French, but the, I'd say I feel I'm saying lu too much of the you know. Uh, but according to Nora, the lu de memoir create a historical nationalistic truth that becomes part of the state's overall memory and moral fabric. One such place in Moscow is the Church of Christ the Savior, the long story of which is told in John and Carol Garrard's uh, work Russian Orthodoxy Resurgent. The original building was commissioned on December 25, 1812, the very day that Napoleon Bonaparte's defeated French army left Russia. Tsar Alexander I decreed its construction in, the, in memory of this victory. The communist regime destroyed the cathedral, though, in 1931, but in 2001, its rebuilding was completed after a lengthy fundraising campaign on the part of Patriarch Alexei II. Before the cathedral's resurrection, the Soviet government had wanted to build a monument to the Great Patriotic War on Moscow's Poklonaya Hill, where Napoleon waited in vain for a Russian surrender. This way, the Soviets could claim the memories of both patriotic wars. But the ROC was, was able to appropriate the Soviet plan for remembrance in multiple public competitions. Uh, the people decided that a church should be built in honor of the Russian victory in 1812. The, the Napoleonic Wars are out of context of this study, but, uh, but although those in charge of the competitions denied the winning church designs for fear of pop Communist Party backlash, the ultimate re reconstruction of the Church of Christ the Savior shows how Russian patriotism has been combined over the years with Russian Christianity. And so, while analyzing Russian Orthodox memory of the Great Patriotic War, it's necessary to see how it remembers Joseph Stalin. The trauma that the Nazis inflicted upon Russia was very real, as we've seen. But we must also look at the Soviet persecution of Christianity in greater depth. The pain that the Soviet government caused for Orthodox believers was just as real as the Nazi crimes and oppression. Alexander Etkind wrote an article in 2004 which offered some valuable insight into the painful legacy of Soviet communist oppression in general and how it causes, still causes problems in modern Russia. Etkin suggested that Pierre Nora's Lue de Memoir made up the hardware, so to speak, of cultural memory, the tangible, visible, touchable monuments that create social remembrance and cohesion. But there's also the software, so to speak, of cultural memory, memory's intangible, invisible components. These include books, lectures, debates, and even museum pamphlets. 
Etkins suggested that the relationship between memorial hardware and software was complicated in Russia. He argued that compared to the amount of guilt that Germany felt over the Holocaust, in Russia there was less unified horror shown over the communist persecution. There's been a lot of software adding to this memory in the, of the Soviet era, including memoirs and films, but very little monuments or hardware dedicated to Soviet oppression, uh, simply because Russian society has, such, has had such differing opinions on the Soviet state. Etkin wrote that there are, quote, 500 monuments, plaques, and commemorative inscriptions at various sites of the Soviet terror, but the he said that they were generally not of good quality, and only two gulag prison campsites, Solovsky and Perm, were memorialized. The former ROC Patriarch Alexei II commemorated a cross at Solovsky, but it contained very little information and its plaque was very, was very small. Etkind also cited the example of Felix Dzerzhinsky's statue in Moscow. Dzerzhinsky was the founder of the Gulag prison system and the Soviet secret police, and as such he was responsible for much of the communist oppression. His statue was taken down in 1991, but even as recently as 2015, some have lobbied for Dzerzhinsky's resurrection. If the statue were returned to its original spot, it would replace a boulder from Zolovetsky Island, another place where a prison camp had operated during Soviet times. A memorial to the victims of Soviet oppression would be replaced with a monument to the oppressor. Because of disagreements between those nostalgic for the Soviet system and those attempting to honor its victims, groups with such different identities and beliefs, historical memory in Russia is contentious. Some Russians have expressed difficulty with so-called Sergianism, Metropolitan Sergius's compromise and cooperation with the domestic antichrist, so to speak, of oppressive communism in order to fend off the foreign antichrist, so to speak, of the Nazis. This memory is especially difficult because while the Nazis killed many Russians, the Soviet state was doing the same to its own people. Kathy Ruslat has noted the controversy between those who suffered under Soviet atheism and those who look upon the Stalinist era with a nostalgic feeling. The ROC has remembered those in, the ROC has remembered those killed in Stalin's anti-religious -perse, anti persecutions. This was especially after the Glasnost or openness period of the 1980s, which allowed the church to research the persecution, publish books, and write obituaries. Sites known as Churches on Spilled Blood have served as lieu de mémoire for the for the victims of militant atheism. These churches, such as the one at the Butovo shooting range where 20,000 believers and non-believers alike were killed, allow religious memorial services to be held for victims and, and for relatives to pray for them. It was also a site where Vladimir Putin publicly addressed the issue of Stalinist terror. In October 2007, he visited Butovo and gave a speech which memorialized the thousands of people that were sent to gulag camps or murdered. This remembrance of Russia's victims of state atheism emphasized the country's status as a martyr nation. Yet, it was also holy Russia in the form of the Soviet Union that fought Nazism during the Great Patriotic War. What to do with this contradiction? Ruslet suggests that the martyrs became role models, and believers can learn about and emulate them. Modern Orthodox Christians carry the torch of faith which the martyrs have passed to them. Note how similar this is to how soldiers of the Great Patriotic War have also been made into examples for life. The ROC's memory of the religious persecutions almost transforms the new martyrs into Christian versions of the war's military fighters. 
through martyrdom. Believing victims of Soviet atheism helped preserve Russia, but they died to preserve the Orthodox Holy Russia and not communism itself, even if they did not directly oppose the Soviet state. The martyrs helped save the spirit of the Russia that had defeated the Tatars, the Napoleon, and Hitler. In this way, the, pers the persecuted Christians, quote, fought and died for the nation along with the soldiers who actually combated the Nazis in the Great Patriotic War. It's evident that the memory of Serginism and Orthodoxy's war efforts is complicated, just like the legacy of Dzerzhinsky. Certainly, Stalin would have been viewed as one of God's enemies, being an atheist and zealous persecutor of God's Christians. But others have held the opposite view of Stalin. The, face of the, the case of Father Dmitry Dudko must be considered during our look at the difficulties with Serginism and Stalin's image in the Russian Orthodox Church. Dudko was arrested twice, in 1948 and 1980, for his religious teachings and, quote, anti-Soviet propaganda. His father had, al had also been persecuted in the 1930s because he did not want his farm to be collectivized. So certainly, Dmitry Dudko seemingly had no reason to love the Soviet Union. Indeed, in July 1979, he wrote that when Patriarch Sergius cooperated with the Soviet government during the war, he had made a great compromise, betraying the church in order to make Stalin happy. Yet this issue obviously caused Dmitry Dudko great confusion, considering the state of Orthodox Christianity in Russia at the time. It is said, the true Orthodox Church have almost no priesthood, and you simply can't find them, and one has to be ministered to by the hierarchy we do have. Immediately the question arises, are they ministering to us? Basically, they are the puppets of the atheists. And another question, at least, are they believers? Who will answer this question? I fear to answer. End quote. In 1980, Dmitry Dudko fell away from his anti-Soviet stances, presumably under state pressure. He repented of his so-called struggle against godliness, in which he, which he admitted as a struggle against the Soviet power. Seemingly continuing the ROC's history of Serginism, this about-face offended many Orthodox outside the Russian Orthodox Church, some of whom had named him and Sergius a heretic. Others, however, were more forgiving, conceding that in the Soviet Union it was nearly impossible to associate with an Orthodox group that did not cooperate with the communist government. Sergius had been defended as well, for he had, been, he had had little choice but to collaborate with the militantly atheistic state in which he operated. But, through, but Dmitry Durko's newfound support of the Soviets of the Soviet seemed to only grow after 1980. After the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, Dudko wanted to restore Stalin's image. He celebrated the wartime Soviet leader as an ascetic and even prayed for his departed soul. And there's an interesting book called um, Our Hope, and it's, and it's a collection of uh, Dmitry Dudko's religious conversations with a number of people. Uh, in this book, he answers their questions about God, atheism, and the Christian faith. And it's interesting to note that on February 23, 1974, before his second arrest, during one of these discussions, Dudko suggested that the Orthodox religion promoted love for the fatherland because of the obligation it places on its adherents to love their neighbors. He also confessed personal love for his country. He went further by suggesting that only the church could create true unity and peace because of its forgiving nature. 
He denounced atheism at this point, believing it would never deliver society from its ills and imperfections. It may appear contradictory that only six years later, Dudko would support the atheistic Soviets. However, he also said in a previous discussion that this church must obey the state regardless of its ideology. Also, regardless of any political motivations he may have had in doing this, Stalin indeed did help restore the ROC in 1943. Thus, Dudko could very well have seen Stalin as the one who helped the church, the quote, sole true creator of peace and unity. But after the Soviet Union dissolved, um, Dmitry Dudko spoke against capitalism and democracy in his country for, quote, promoting greed and impoverishing Russian society. Dudko also worked with Russian nationalists and strove for Christian communist cooperation, even supporting Gennady Zyuganov's presidential campaign for the Communist Party. Russian nationalist leader Alexander Prokhanov praised Dudko, who died in June 2004 for his loving character. Alexander Prokhanov has even promoted the idea of Stalin being Christian. In late May 2015, it was reported that Prokhanov's nationalistic group, the Izbork Club, presented an Orthodox-style icon of the Soviet dictator. This happened on Prokhorovka Field, where a major battle took place between Soviet and Nazi forces in the summer of 1943. The image showed the Mother of God, Mary, looking down on Stalin and some of his military commanders. A priest play, prayed for slain heroes. The ROC officially condemned this icon since Stalin's ideology was a, quote, civil religion that persecuted orthodoxy and no saints were depicted on the icon, besides, of course, the Most Holy Virgin Mary. Despite this, and despite Stalin's brutal actions against the ROC and Soviet citizens, Prokhorov said that the icon represented the, quote, victory of light against darkness. This was not the first time a Stalin icon caused controversy. Back in 2008 and 2010, similar icons had serviced and offended people. The fact that Stalin has had such depictions of him is made of him is telling. He was a persecutor of the church and even an atheist despite spending some of his youth in a seminary. On March 1, 2016, another controversy was reported on the Pravoslavie.ru news website. This time, it was not an icon, but a car sticker that caused an, a Russian Orthodox priest named Artemy Kozin to protest. The sticker showed Tsar Alexander III, Vladimir Putin, and Stalin depicted above the phrase, quote, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. The black and orange stripes of the St. George's ribbon, a patriotic symbol, were also depicted in this car sticker. Kozin was merciless in his criticism of the sticker, saying that only an unknowledgeable zombie would ignore Stalin's mistreatment of Christians. He even went as far to say that no one interested in righteousness would honor or justify Stalin. Yet some Russian Orthodox Christians have seen it fit to memorialize Stalin in religious iconography. To them, Stalin's rather iconic role in preserving the Russian land and faith against the German invaders made up for or negated his sins against the church. Dmitry Dudkos thought that Stalin was a Christian despite his anti-religious reputation, but he was not the only one with his view. Katya Richters notes the examples of A. Kravchenko and O. Vysileva, two writers for Draftly's website. Kravchenko believed that Soviet Russia was still Orthodox Christian, even though its government was atheistic and it launched brutal persecutions against the church. 
Richters investigates the work of another Drofli writer, O. Vasileva, who praised Stalin for helping the church get a bank account, making it easier to collect parishioners' charitable donations, which were coming from all across the Soviet Union. Vasilieva ignored Stalin's atheism, focusing on what he did for Orthodox Christians and for the Russian nation by leading the USSR to victory. Richter's notes that since the death of Patriarch Alexei II and the ascendance of Kirill in his place, some Orthodox writers have been more critical of this Christian image of Stalin. So we've already seen the example of Artyomi uh, um, Kozin with the card sticker and how angry that made him. But there was also the Metropolitan Ilarian of Volokolamsk, who said in December 2009 that Stalin was an oppressor, and Stalin's role in the victory of 1945 would not justify him. It's useful right now to analyze some different ideas about the Soviet Union, including those of so-called fringe Orthodox groups. These are groups that might have, might have more nationalistic doctrines than the official Russian Orthodox Church. For example, the quote-unquote Orthodox Communists have suggested that the Soviet Union was a clandestine Orthodox Kingdom. The Soviet Union's national, the Soviet nation's religiosity was never in doubt, according to this group. However, it must be noted that Alexander Prokhorov, the previously mentioned associate of Father Dutko, did not define Orthodox as would the Russian Orthodox Church. He said that something was Orthodox if it was Soviet or if it was anti-liberal. So, according to Pokhranov, Slobodan Milosevic of the former Yugoslavia or the late Kim Jong-il of North Korea could be considered, quote, orthodox. Stalin is not the only, quote, great man to have been remembered in Russian Orthodox narratives of the war. During the war, the church compared the Nazi invasion to the Mongol attacks against Rus in the 13th century. And it's also important to note that the secular school system also complemented the religious propaganda. Uh, remember before how I mentioned that the school system was brought to... Um, it, it toned down its anti-religious rhetoric, but school programs also denounced Russia's foreign and Nazi invaders and praised Russia's history, histor Russian history's great heroes such as Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great. Study and education were made and turned into patriotic duties. But uh, in looking to previous wars in which survival of Russia was at stake, the legacies of, med of medieval Russian warrior heroes such as Dmitry Donskoy and Alexander Nevsky were resurrected. Quote, the, same the same spirit of patriotism and hatred of the enemy pervades Orel, Tambov, Penza, K uh, Kuznetsk, and all the towns throughout our boundless country. This was uh, printed in a 1943 tract called The Russian Orthodox Church and the War Against Fascism. It was in this document that Metropolitan Benjamin, exarch of the ROC in America, expressed hope by noting that the German attack started on June 22, 1941, and this was the very day of the quote all the, all the saints in the land of Russia. So it's kind of so he's basically saying the Germans invaded us uh, invaded Russia on, on on a version of All Saints Day in Russia. So that that's a sign that this is going to go well. And so, talking about this, and so we've we've kind of talked about how the Russian Orthodox Church views um, uh, Stal uh, views Stalin, or at least some groups within the ROC, whether they're fringe or not. Uh, talking about Stalin, because Stalin, yes, he did restore the church, or, or restore the patriarchate during the war. Um, he did allow the church to operate. That did happen, yes. But at the same time, people don't want to ignore 
um, the anti-religious persecution that they did. So what to do with this? So there's, again, the idea of martyrdom. Um, so someone who dies a martyr at the sands of a Soviet NKVD officer or KGB officer, or like that's uh, NKVD is the old version of the what became the KGB. And so a martyr is seen uh, as fighting for Holy Russia in the same way that a Soviet, a Red Army soldier is fighting against the Nazis preserving Russia. So it's kind of a it's it's weird, um, weird dynamic there. Um, but we've gone through that, and so uh, what I want to do as well is look at the Russian society's religious memory of the war in it in its popular media. Uh, as Nigel Hunt says, memories are social and cultural constructions. Any society's art, paintings, literature, music, and films will reflect what the culture values and what historical events are worth remembering. And one such work I studied was the 2006 film called Ostrov, or The Island. And, and it's interesting that this film is not about the Great Patriotic War per se, but it includes elements that direct point directly to that conflict and religion within the Soviet Union. Ostrov begins in 1942 with two Soviet personnel on board a coal freighter. The Nazi uh, soldiers capture the men and their ship without a fight. The German captain forces the, the subordinate Soviet crewman to shoot his commander, who is named Tikhon. The crewman f the f tearfully fires on Tikhon, who falls into the water. After that, the Germans scuttle the freighter, but they have left the subordinate crewman behind, who is washed ashore at a monastery. The film then fast-forwards to the year 1976, by which time the subordinate crewman has become a monk at the monastery, taking on the name Anatoly. Anatoly is a very penitent character, constantly uttering prayers for forgiveness when he is not receiving visitors or attending a coal furnace. He offers heartfelt petitions for Tikhon. Quote, Remember, O Lord, the soul of thy departed servant, the warrior Tikhon. Pardon him every sin, and grant him the kingdom of heaven and the fount of everlasting life. Up to this point in the film, there's been no evidence that Tikhon was a Christian. He smoked cigarettes, and he did not cross himself or pray when facing certain death in 1942. When Anatoly prays for his soul, it reminds us of how in wartime the, the Moscow Patriarchate commanded prayers for Russia's warriors, even if they were not Christian. A very similar thing happens in another scene. An elderly woman who has lost her husband Mikhail in the war requests from Anatoly a requiem prayer for Mikhail, another, quote, fallen warrior. Towards the end of the film, a Soviet admiral visits the monastery in the hope of curing his mentally disturbed daughter. A loyal Communist Party man, the admiral is, of course, like Tikhon, not openly Christian. But then, it is revealed, spoiler alert, that this admiral is, in fact, Tikhon himself. Anatoly had only shot his arm during the war. Tikhon forgives Anatoly, suggesting that he is perhaps basically Christian, as some have said about Stalin, atheistic and Soviet on the outside, but inwardly a follower of Christ. Father Arseny is another work that touches on this religious character of the Soviet Union. And Father Arseny is a book of collection of stories about a fictional priest named Father Arseny, who was sent to Soviet prison camps in 1933 and 1939 because of his religious vocation. He was imprisoned for two decades, but the oppressed priest touches countless people with his religious fervor, concern for others, and his teachings. Father Arseny has an almost charismatic effect, deepening and resurrecting the faith of people who interact with him. 
Miracles follow him as well, including the time when he and a fellow prisoner are confined to a cold metal room for two days. They should not survive this punishment, but they constantly pray during it, persevering to the end. Alexei, the other prisoner, has vi had visions of a church service during the ordeal, envisioning Arseni wearing priestly vestments and, the two, and two others serving the divine liturgy with him. This experience brought Alexei to faith in God in spite of his non-religious upbringing and membership in the Komsomol, Komsomol, the Soviet Union's communist youth organization. Alexei's experience ties into what is perhaps our father Arseni's main theme, which suggests that the Soviet Union was actually a Christian country. Early in the anthology, Father Arseni makes a calm but impassioned argument about how orthodoxy laid the foundation of Russian art and architecture, making the quote, very stones teach about God and glorify God. He contrasts this powerful idea with that of Soviet intellectualism, which looks at religious art merely from a blind socio-economic viewpoint. Arseni affirms that what, what we have read earlier, that religion is a vital part of Russian culture and communism could not totally eradicate it. Father Arseni emphasizes this point by showing how a sense of God or basic Christianity is in almost every one of the story's characters. A communist fighter who protects some women from his rapacious comrades during the Russian Civil War is described as having a spark of God in him. Even a hardened criminal and a camp supervisor have consciences and a sense of right and wrong. Father Arseni has a first-hand experience with this idea when he dies of a virulent flu during his imprisonment. After his spirit leaves his body, he can see a faint glow in all but the darkest and most faithless of souls. Those who are dim only need a priest or a teacher to fan their small, their small spark of God into a flame. The sight humbles Arseni, who in life had judged many of his fellow prisoners as having no faith. Upon seeing Mary, the mother of God, Arseni begs her not to forget the other inmates. She tells him that his time on earth is not yet ended. Before Arseni returns to his human body, the Virgin encourages him further with these words, You are not alone, Arseni. There are many people serving me. You will serve alongside them. In the spiritually dark period of the Soviet Union, it is hard for Arseni to see people who are religious like him, but his near-death experience shows him that non-religious communism could not quench the fires of faith within all Soviet citizens, even in the camps, were, which were the depths of the Soviet, the oppressive Soviet system. The book also includes Christians who are part of the Soviet power structure. First, there is the commander of Arseni's prison camp, a major who is secretly a Christian, having grown up in faith. He has great difficulty between his faith and his job as a prison, chief, prison camp chief. The Soviet system is hard on him, for it encourages people to denounce others, and the prisoners endure great suffering in his camp. He survives by interrogating, quote-unquote, Father Arseni privately and delivering to the priest private messages from a spiritual student of his. The major is forced to live out his faith in secret, but he somehow manages to do so. A second Christian in authority is the devout Lieutenant Kamenev, an officer during the Great Patriotic War. He doesn't curse, he fights well against the Germans, and he goes ahead of his men into combat whenever possible. He publicly declares his faith by crossing himself and saying that God will help him and his men survive combat. When two Red Army troops try to denounce him as a wolf in sheep's clothing, Kamenev's superior shames them, not caring about his beliefs, but only about his fighting ability. Another character describes himself as a communist and a Christian, one who simply tries not to be involved in anti-religious work or propaganda. 
As Lieutenant Kamenev says, even up there in the Communist Party, there are good people. From those described as having a spark of God inside them, to the religious camp commandant, to the faithful Lieutenant Kamenev, the Soviet Union is depicted as how Dmitry Dudko saw Stalin. Christians were active in the, act, in the atheistic Soviet state, if only subtly. Thus, the Soviet land is seen as a country that still had strong Christian roots, even though it, quote, appeared atheistic. Father Arseny uh, touches on the Soviet persecution itself. At one point in the book, Arseny gets stuck in a fierce debate amongst the prisoners. They are arguing about Stalin and the communists, whom they accuse of destroying the Red Army and eradicating the Christian faith. Arseny's perspective of the state is demanded of him, and his response is quite surprising for a priest, considering that he is among the persecuted. He says this, You say that the communists have arrested the believers. Closed churches trampled on faith. Yes, it does look that way on the surface. But let us look into this more deeply. Among us Russian people, many have lost the faith, lost respect for our past. We have lost much of what was precious and good. Who's at fault? The authorities? No, we're at fault ourselves. We are only reaping what we ourselves have sown. Arseny continues to berate Russian society. The priesthood is especially blamed. Their children lost the faith, priests became professionals rather than servants, and others fell into alcoholism. Orthodoxy, Arseny says, grew dim from the lack of true faith. He almost seems to absolve the Soviet government of any wrongdoing because it was the Russian people that lost their way. Thus, the brutal communists became agents of God's wrath against a faltering people. The truth about religion in Russia uh, had similar things to say about the Soviet persecution of the ROC, though it took more of a political perspective read there rather than one of social morality. It justified the Soviet state by saying that those clergymen who were arrested uh, were working against the government. These anti-Soviet men were accused of being wolves in sheep's clothing who used the church as a cover for their sabotage. The book did not place responsibility for this persecution on Marxist anti-religious ideology, but rather on those whom it affected. It argued that the 1918 Soviet Constitution had guaranteed religious freedom, so there was, quote, no state persecution against the church. And let's note here that this book mentions Peter the Great's creation of the Holy Synod in 1721. Um, the Holy Synod was a, a, a governmental body that replaced the ROC's Patriarchate, which Peter had dissolved in that same year. The book details how Tsar Peter the Great used the Synod to exercise government control over the Church, diluting its spiritual value. The Soviet decree that separated the Church and State is depicted as a great boon for the faithful, who were now, quote, free from government oversight. This contrast uh, presented the Soviet reality as a good time for religion, as opposed to an oppressive pre-communist Tsarist era. So going back to justifying the uh, Soviet state, uh, thus if the state punished any clergyman, it was said to be a political prosecution, uh, not an ideologically motivated persecution. When speaking of the League of the Godless, Harvey Fireside noted that the League was not directly or overtly tied to the Soviet government, giving a veneer or appearance of religious freedom. This way, the, so the pro-Soviet elements of the ROC could claim to the rest of the world that there was no religious persecution. The ROC did not claim that there were no anti-religious sentiments um, 
in the Soviet Union, for it fully acknowledged with bitter regret that the Soviet government was built upon atheistic ideology. Yet again, the church gave the Soviets political legitimacy. It told of how the government allowed the faithful to celebrate Easter in 1942, even while Moscow was under threat of German attack. It also gave ultimate authority to the Soviets by referring to the biblical obligation for Christians to submit to their government, which is found in the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans. Quote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. And you can see this uh, verse in Romans 13, chapter 1. One priest, Father Sergius Lavrov, justified the whole communist system by saying that Soviet taxes levied upon the church supported the country's anti-capitalist and anti-elitist collective socialist economy. And finally, the truth about religion in Russia stated that wartime Nazi propaganda was spreading the myth of religious persecution in the Soviet Union. Priests wrote that about being able to carry out religious activities without trouble from the Soviets, but the destructive Quote, pagan Nazis, descendants of Teutonic Knights, and Protestant agents of Hitler were pictured as the true persecutors of the Russian church due to their desecration of church buildings, tortures, and murders. Father Arsani makes some direct comment about the Great Patriotic War. At the end of his criticism of the Russian people for losing their faith, Arsani affirms that he is a Soviet citizen. And he tells how he had always encouraged patriotism within his flock, telling them to protect their fatherland. But the war is also shown in the book to be a spiritual experience that helps lead combatants and other Russians to God. We've already seen the story of Lieutenant Kamenev and how he exercised faith during the conflict. This faith influences a soldier under his command, who is named Platon Skorino. It takes time, but Kamenev's conversations about religion and his Christian example on the battlefield plant a seed of faith in Skorino's heart that grows after he is wounded. A devout nurse who takes care of him helps water this seed and Skorino chooses to eventually enter the seminary. Another character, a woman named Nina, initially an unbeliever, calls upon the mother of God in the chaotic situation after escaping from the German advance on Moscow. So now it's time to wrap all this up. This is, wow, I'm running at 2 hours and 13 minutes right now. It's almost midnight, so I better <laughs> I better call this quits. But I, but I will, I shall finish, I shall finish. Um... Our study of the Russian Orthodox Church's memory of the Great Patriotic War has taught us many things. The Orthodox Church is a very important cultural and social force in Russia, even if the, even if the statistics show that many of its adherents are not particularly, quote, devout. For over a millennium, the Church has developed into a crucial part of Russianness and identity. But what happens when such an important part of a so society suffers trauma? As we have seen in this study, during the Soviet era, the Russian Orthodox Church suffered greatly under an anti-religious government. The Orthodox Christians' tribulations within the Soviet Union including the, included the destruction of cathedrals and monasteries, clergy being murdered, and overall social disadvantage. To make matters worse, the Soviet leadership also intended to interfere in religious affairs by encouraging the creation of such groups as the Renovation Church, Renovationist Church, and Denisu, as Denisu Pospilovsky has noted. This persecution left marks that are visible in the Russian Orthodox community today as commemorated, as commemorated in massacre sites and churches on spilled blood. Many Russian believers were martyred in a system that was very brutal to them. Yet another trauma appeared shortly after, the horror of war. This conflict, the Great Patriotic War, is another very important part of modern Russian society. 
Its memory has given political legitimacy not only to the old Soviet state that fought it, but also to the modern Russian government as an inheritor of the legacy of fighting against fascism. The universal trauma and suffering that the war inflicted upon the Soviet people still resonates in modern Russia. Through politically charred through politically charged memorialization of the war and the sharing of personal experiences, the Great Patriotic War is part of moral, Russia's moral fabric. Fighters and veterans are made into role models, encouraging modern Russians to perform the same actions for their country if it is required. And the war's memory is so important that the Russian government recently made it a crime to intentionally slander the Soviet war effort against the Nazis. The horrors of atheistic Soviet oppression and Nazi invasion combined to create a rather complicated situation for the Russian Orthodox people. During the war, Stalin's position towards the ROC was greatly relaxed. This allowed the church to operate more or less under normal circumstances, and the church eagerly helped the Soviet war effort by raising funds, offering up prayers, and encouraging Christians to resist Hitler's armies. This situation created a memory which is difficult for some. How could the church support how could the church leadership support and cooperate with the Soviet government which had resisted God by killing orthodox believers? For many, the victory against German fascism is one of the greatest moments in Russian history, but the Soviet persecution of the church cannot be ignored either. Both the modern state and the Russian Orthodox Church remember the war in ceremonies and writings. How can these memories coexist? We recall how soldiers fought in the war of role models. But so are the martyrs who suffered under Soviet oppression. As we have seen, this leads to the creation of a memory in which martyrdom at the hands of a communist execution and death on the battlefield against Hitler both became part of the fight for holy Russia. The blood of martyrs, the fight against Nazism, and Russia's long Christian history make the Soviet Union a basically Christian country in the eyes of many. Some even try to sanctify Stalin for his restoration of the Russian church and his fight against the Germans. The Great Patriotic War is depicted as a fight for the sacred space of Russia, even though this, mem this war memory originated in the now dead Soviet Union that actually fought and suffered. In modern times, there are fears of the fascist, decadent, and failing Western world, as well as anxiety over the conflict between pro-Russian and pro-Kiev factions in Ukraine. These worries breathe new life into the idea of a holy Orthodox Russia, such is the construction of memory. Memories of historical traumas can be brought into modern times and molded into discourses that mean something to modern audiences. This gives them heroes and encourages patriotic attitudes to emulate and display in their own lives. Well, that's it, and I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. It's a very long one. After all the editing and everything like that, uh, it ended up being about two hours and ten minutes. Uh, so uh, so it's pretty long. But also, I just want to make a quick note about uh, the music. Uh, you may notice that I put some music in the background. I hope it uh, kind of made it a little... Um, little nicer to listen to uh give a good atmosphere as they say um but uh so i alternated uh, religious rush uh, orthodox music and also um soviet propaganda or patriotic music um so but i just want to give like a quick uh, sh uh credit to uh some of the songs that he used uh want to mention pavel grigoriev who did a art uh, do the version of belaya armia charlie buron uh which is really a uh it's a russian civil war song so it's it's created in the context of uh that's 
before uh, the Great Patriotic War, but uh, it's still a Russian patriotic song, so I thought it, it would uh, still work. And also, we had also some music as far as the religious music. Uh, oh, and also for the patriotic uh, music side, we also had a music from the Red Army Choir. Um, as far as the religious uh, music, I... Um, I used some of the uh, tunes from the Blagovest Sacred Music Ensemble, Irena Arkipova, USSR Chamber Choir, and Valery Polyansky. Uh, there was a, C a collection of uh, CDs that um, where this music came from. And also, there is finally the... Let me find it here. Monk's Choir of Kiev, Pechersk, Lavra. Uh, so there was some music from there as well. So you'll hear music from these uh, artists and these groups uh, in the background. And uh, once again, I hope it worked out pretty good. Um, I think the audio balance is pretty good because one of my fears, it's I find it incredibly annoying if I watch a video or watch a TV show or something like that and the music overpowers the voice. So I made sure it was really in the background. So um, I hope it worked and uh, hope you all have a good uh, good week. And uh, we'll catch you in the next podcast. All right. Talk to you later. Uh, Dos vidania.